the first half of the 20th century saw um, probably the most significant retreat of Christianity that the world has ever seen. The story of the gospel has been one of um, fantastic growth all over the world for hundreds of years. But within Western culture, in the first half of the 20th century, the church declined at a, a tragic rate. There are many Christians still alive who can remember how things used to be. They'll tell you stories of packed parish churches, of Sunday schools bursting at the seams. And in their lifetime, they have seen a decline unlike anything seen before. And uh, there are many factors contributing to that decline. But not least is it because the church failed to respond to a culture that was changing. Culture changed from a place where the dominant worldview and the dominant philosophy was a Christian one. Culture changed from a place where the church was at the heart of society and the heart of everybody's lives. But as that transformation took place, the church, instead of responding to it and engaging with it, tried to oppress it, tried to put it down, tried to fight for its power. And ultimately, like, that led, in, led to this great failure. And so most of our experience of church, but most of us, is that church exists on the margins of society. It's a minority viewpoint. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to stand for what you might believe. You feel like a minority. And the challenge of being church in what increasingly is a hostile culture, the challenge of being the people of God in this city is one that all of us have got experience of quite how difficult it can be. And so that leads us to this book of Acts. It's the saga continuing. This isn't actually a new story. If you've been with us for um, the previous year, you'll know we studied recently the book of Luke's, of, um, Luke's Gospel. And uh, this is the continuation. It's written by the same person. It's uh, the same voice and it's the same story, but it's got a very different thrust to it. So we're going to look at these first uh, 11 verses just really to set up this series for the rest of the term, to give you a flavor for where we're going for uh, what we hope that God is going to be doing amongst us over these coming weeks. If you look at the first verse, you'll see that it's addressed to the same person who Luke was addressed to. It says in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And maybe you remember that we were theorizing a little about, a bit about who this Theophilus was. He's got a very odd name. It means uh, lover of God. And it's quite possible that he was a, a real person. Um, I suspect if he is a real person, that's not his real name. I think it may be a pseudonym. We theorize, too, that he was a man of some significance, uh, some status. He was clearly uh, Greek or Roman, existing within that very sophisticated culture, probably a man of some power and influence, probably wealthy and someone of status. And uh, acts. I think, gives more insight into who this person might be. But of course, he's not just an individual. He's representative. It's uh, a sign of quite who Luke is addressing. Different Gospels focus in different directions. Matthew very much has a focus on Judaism. Um, uh, John speaks to within to sort of philosophical Greek culture. Luke always challenged the very heart of sort of social and um, uh, political culture within Rome. And uh, I think Luke in Acts is addressing uh, the same thing. 
So it's addressed to this chap, uh, Theophilus. And uh, Luke's writing is really interesting. It's, um, uh, it's very sophisticated. Uh, it's got a very different flavor, actually, to um, uh, lots of the other New Testament writing. Uh, it's been said that it has more in common with um, some of the sort of Roman uh, uh, writing than it does with other books in the New Testament. Um, from a literary perspective, it's very much like uh, the sort of famous Roman historians, the work of people like uh, Josephus. Um, this is the sort of uh, narrative that Luke has in mind as he's writing. It is a thoughtful, philosophical, academic, theological text. It's demanding, too. It's going to require us to do some work on it, to understand it, and to, um, uh, to see where uh, Luke is taking us. So my question to start with is, well, what, what is this book? Well, I want to start by saying what it's not. It's not simply a history. It's not simply a history of the early church, um, uh, not least because it's quite selective. It only tells a selection of the stories. Uh, when the church started in Jerusalem, it spread in every direction, north, south, east, and west, spread down into um, Africa and east, into the, um, uh, to the far east. But the story of Acts simply tells the story in, well, one direction, really, north and east. It has a trajectory, a destination. And what is north and east of Jerusalem? Where do you think this book is heading? Who said that? Yeah. It's heading for Rome. Rome being the political, social heart of the most powerful empire the world had ever seen to that point. Luke has his eyes set on this uh, monolith of an empire. And it's the story of the church within that context. So it's not simply a history. It's not either, I don't think, and maybe you've heard uh, Acts taught in this way, as a sort of blueprint for church. Uh, I've often seen Acts taught as a, well, this is how church should be. And if we could just get back to how the church was in Acts, then everything would be fine. Um, it's often discussed as a sort of um, uh, a model for how to do church. And I just think that's missing the point entirely. If you expect Acts to tell you how to do church in terms of the structure, the organization, leadership, all of those kind of things, there's gaping holes in it. Luke clearly isn't interested in laying out a sort of ecclesiology. This is what church should look like. It's far more narrative and historical than that. Um, let me give you an example in uh, just a little bit later in the passage that we didn't read in verses um, uh, 12 to 26. There's a, an interesting little account of um, Peter taking charge. And um, uh, it's because one of the apostles is missing, because uh, Judas is um, not as well as he was. And um, Peter sort of steps in. He says, right, we need someone else to fill that place. And he quotes some bits of Old Testament, says, let his, uh, let his place be filled. And then they come up with this system by which they're going to appoint um, a new apostle. But I'm really interested in the language of it. It's in contrast to the bit we just read. It is Peter who has taken initiative. It's the group of uh, uh, disciples who have sort of uh, started to put together what they think the church should look like. Essentially what I'm getting at is this is not a blueprint of how church should be. And the way that Luke describes it is, well, this is just kind of what they did. And we will find as this book goes on that there are lots of different things, lots of which were mistakes. There's one very significant mistake which Peter falls into. Peter, the greatest um, of the disciples, the sort of uh, the biggest mouth, the strongest character, gets into a terrible mess. And one of the aspects of this story is, as much as it's the story of uh, God at work, it's also the story of people at work. 
with their great successes and their great failures. So this is not a blueprint for how church is to be. So what is it? I suggest two things. I suggest, first of all, that this is intended to be a vindication of the church. This is the, uh, the, the, the narrative of the spread of Christianity, which is intended to sort of contextualize it. It's happened, of course. You write history in reverse. Everybody knows about this church, which has just exploded across the empire, which uh, persecution was starting to break out against, and everybody was talking about. And this story is intended to make sense of what is going on. So it's a sort of, it's a vindication of the church. It's got a, a very political agenda. Um, it's the church existing in a, in a time when it was starting to uh, cause some serious trouble and uh, persecution was threatening the lives of Christians. And I think Luke very much has the Roman authorities in mind as he tells this story. This is who the church is. This is why it's here and this is what it's striving to achieve. It's attempting to vindicate what the church is and what it's doing. And one other thing is that this is a story which you and I are invited to participate in. The book of Acts, don't look now, we'll get there eventually. The book of Acts has a really interesting ending in the sense that it doesn't really have an ending. It's a terrible piece of literature. Just finishes. But I don't think that's some kind of mistake. I don't think Luke's the sort of author who, um, who just kind of ran out of enthusiasm for his work or his quill got a bit dry. It's a story that is open-ended and all the way through it, he is inviting us to be part of this story. This is not simply history. This is not some things that you should learn about if you're a Christian because this is kind of how things got started. It is a story which is our story. It is a story which you are uh, called um, to embrace as your own and then to participate in. And all the way through, it provokes us. It provokes us to uh, respond as the uh, disciples, as the people uh, who are preached to, um, respond in different ways. Likewise, we are called to respond. Let me tell you about the central characters in the story that we are going to hear. The first is in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, Luke writes, I wrote all about that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Ironically, the key figure of this book, um, just as the Gospels was, is Jesus. I say ironically because he's only, he's only in the first chapter, and yet he remains the central figure of this book. I think it's really interesting what Luke says. He says, um, I wrote all about all, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the Gospels, essentially, are just the first part of Jesus' ministry. That's just the beginning. And even those momentous events of the cross and the resurrection are just the beginning. And of course, that's a fascinating idea that the church, as it sort of unfolds in the world, is Jesus continuing to work. And because it's open-ended, it means that the church now is Jesus continuing to work. We are part of this very same story. Luke has already written about what Jesus began to do. Now he is writing about what Jesus continues to do. And you and I are drawn into that story. For Jesus continues to work now. He works in uh, each of you as individuals. And as you bring that to this church community, he works in us together. So the first and central character of this story is Jesus. The second is, um, well, not a new character, because uh, it's a character that's been around since, well, literally the first verse of Genesis. But it's a character which becomes much more central in the book of Acts. And that's uh, in verse 2. 
until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And we're going to hear an awful lot more about the Holy Spirit in this story. But I think it's probably worth saying at the outset that um, uh, Acts has often been seen as the story of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people try and rename it the Acts of the Holy Spirit instead of the Acts of the Apostles. And I can kind of see why they'd want to do that. It's, uh, it is God at work. But it isn't that something um, uh, different is happening here in Acts. The Holy Spirit has been at work throughout the whole story. In fact, anywhere where God works, it's the Holy Spirit through which that is unraveled from creation all the way through. But the Holy Spirit takes a very different place in this story and becomes far more central. And we're going to see far more of what it means for the Holy Spirit to take a central place. And then third, also in verse 2, it says, um, until he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And this, frankly, hapless bunch of individuals, uh, hapless throughout the Gospels, as I'm sure you're aware, continuing to be hapless at the beginning of Acts, are also the central story of this book. It's the story of how um, a, a group of very ordinary people are transformed and go out to uh, shake up the world that they're part of. So central characters of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, and of these apostles. The central theme of this book is in verse 3. After his suffering, suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The theme of Jesus, after his resurrection, the theme that he chose to spoke about most of all when he spent time with his uh, friends and disciples uh, in those 40 days that he, uh, he returned, was the kingdom of God. It is the very same theme that echoes through the Gospels. It's the very same theme that echoes through those great Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. The central theme of this story remains the kingdom of God. But one very interesting question is the fact that that as a phrase starts to fade out. And uh, it's been uh, uh, discussed many times why Paul uses the kingdom of God as a phrase so little. Even Acts doesn't use it very much at all. And I think um, while the central theme of Jesus is the kingdom of God. The central theme of the church has always been the king and is the king who brings the kingdom. And so as the disciples went out into the world to proclaim, they proclaimed the king who brings his kingdom. But I think that theme of the kingdom of God at the heart of the book of Acts is something that we want to hold on to, not least because we want to see the continuity right through those Old Testament prophets, right through the gospels, right into the early church in the book of Acts. Now, most great stories uh, will have somewhere in the beginning of them um, a crisis, a, a turning point, um, a moment which changes everything. And uh, verse 4 starts to speak of the moment which is going to be the crisis, the turning point in this book of Acts. Jesus says, uh, Luke, Luke says again, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think it is really significant that for the early church, the great turning point was not the cross. Frankly, after the cross, most of the disciples packed up their bags and walked away. They thought it was all over. It wasn't even the resurrection. Confronted with the risen Jesus, the disciples just basically looked very confused. The turning point for the early church 
was the event we call Pentecost. It comes up in a couple of chapters in the book of Acts. But that is the thing which transforms these frankly hapless disciples into bold, selfless, courageous witnesses to the kingdom of God who are willing to give them the very selves for this good news that they have understood. But right now they're still hapless. Look in verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm sorry? Are you still going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Have you been around Jesus all this time and you still think that this is some kind of political endeavor, that he's going to turn Israel back into the sort of glorious nation that it was under King David? Now, it's not completely uh, uh, incomprehensible that they should think that. They knew their Old Testament quite well. Um, the pictures that Isaiah paints certainly point to Israel being this great nation. But surely three years with Jesus would help to enlarge their view of what God's purposes in this world are beyond simply making Israel into a great nation once again. But no, that's what they ask. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus responds like this. It is not for you to know the times or the dates in verse 7. The Father has set by his own authority. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Uh, this is a slight aside and not really the central theme of this verse, but I probably just want to say now that we need to be seriously suspicious of the kind of crazy Christianity which I think you've probably all encountered in one way or another, which basically puts all its focus on when Jesus is about to come back. I remember uh, when I was a student at university, some of you may have heard this story before, but it was completely bonkers. And there was a guy who uh, came to church, and uh, he'd just uh, come in from another church, and he said, um, I've got news for you. Um, pastor of my church, he's, uh, got a very good, he's got a very serious gift as a prophet, and um, uh, the Lord has just revealed to him that Jesus is coming back a week on Thursday. So just get yourself ready. I'm going to tell people, because this is really cool. And, you know, we were, I was like 19 or something. And you, you kind of go, mm -hmm. and it really messed us all up. We had just all ran around like slightly crazy things. And we were all, it was the Christian universe, like, um, I don't think, oh, maybe he is. <laughs> and you can imagine that Thursday morning waking up kind of going, oh. <laughs> Probably one of the strangest days of my life. Actually, it turned out Jesus didn't come back that day, which is good news for you people. Um, <laughs> but we need to be seriously suspicious of the kind of Christianity which basically puts its focus on trying to work out when Jesus comes, not least because it has the job of detracting us from the central call of the gospel and the central call of the book of Acts. It turns us into sort of slightly crazy Christians uh, who basically aren't interested in anybody else because we're like, Jesus, come back, brilliant, yay. Whatever, that was an aside. That was an aside. Good. Uh, so it is not for you to know the times of the date. Uh, verse 8, but here... Here is the central agenda. Don't you start thinking about those things. Don't worry about those things. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus takes their parochial view of God's interest, the idea that God is simply interested in one nation or one type of people and says, no, forget that. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be given power. And what is the job? What does the Holy Spirit empower you to do? It is to go and be courageous, bold witnesses to Jesus Christ. It is going to, it's to go and to live and to speak of this kingdom that has been proclaimed amongst us. From uh, Jerusalem as a starting point, throughout Judea, throughout your own nation, into Samaria, full of those people who you really hate, 
and to the ends of the earth. And it is Jesus that's the message. It is the king who brings the kingdom. And it is that which these disciples are to be empowered to do. And then in verse 9, a strange thing happens. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the event known as the Ascension, as Jesus returns to heaven. It's one of the festivals that the church celebrates. But here's my question. Why is Jesus taken away? Why does he, like, die, get resurrected, hang around for a while, and then leave? Surely all of our lives would be an awful lot easier if he just stuck around. You know what I mean? He could have kind of done the teaching. It would have been good to meet him. I don't think he was going to get old and die, so that'd be ace. I mean, I say, it may sound like a stupid question, but why did he return and then leave again? Why is it that flawed, weak human beings have to be the witnesses? Why can't Jesus do it for himself? I think this is one of the central questions in terms of understanding God's purposes. It's one of the central questions in understanding God's relationship with humanity. I think it's an enormous question, but it was just one that I thought. Why does he get taken away? Why doesn't he stick around? Here's my thinking on it. God's intent is for creation to be restored. God's intent is for humanity to be recreated. Human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation, made in the very image of God. And it's the church which is to be the mechanism of that restoration. It is through creation itself that God intends to restore this world. I think it's a crazy idea. I think it would be far better if Jesus did it himself. But that clearly isn't God's plan. And God has called you and I as flawed and weak human beings to be the agents of that restoration. And maybe it's the case that the very process of the involvement in that restoration is part of the restoration. Maybe as you and I are called to be witnesses to Jesus Christ, that that is part of that renewal happening. Maybe in the crazy wisdom of God, it is this mechanism of being witnesses, of gathering the people of God, of being church, which is actually part of the way that the kingdom of God is brought in and that humanity and creation are restored. I still think it's a bad idea, but it seems to be God's idea. And it seems to fall on you and me to be that restoration. This is a story which you and I are called to be part of. And so the church is not simply a holding bay for people as they wait to be shipped to eternity. It is the very seeds of the new creation. It is the yeast which leavens the whole world. And then here's my favorite verse in this chapter, because this makes me laugh. Verse 10. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. I really like that picture of the disciples basically just standing there. I think they've been there for quite a while. <laughs> Imagine Jesus just gets taken up the kind of go. And nobody quite spoke. And nobody could decide to do anything. And they just all stood there. And it took a flipping angel 
to appear to kick them into action. I think quite a lot of Christians are a bit like that. I know quite a lot. I've spent time doing it myself. There is a great tendency amongst Christians to spend a lot of time staring, looking at the sky, waiting for something to happen. And I don't, it's unfortunate actually that angels don't pop up and kick us up the backside. That would make things easier. But what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Jesus' call, Jesus' commission and um, uh, uh, call upon us is to a job, to a job of the utmost significance, to a job which is at the heart of God's plan for the whole of humanity and the whole of creation. So stop standing, looking at the sky, waiting for something to happen, because the call is upon you and it is upon me. This is the job that we have to do. Church on the Corner is made up of a remarkable bunch of people. Each of you is remarkable in your own way. And uh, we have amongst us the most fantastic gifts, uh, the most remarkable characters and people. We are blessed to be made up of such remarkable people. But the great danger is that we are the servant blessed with the many talents. You remember the parable. The king goes away, he gives his servants talents. The great danger is we're the one who's got a lot. And we need not to be the one that buries it in the ground. One of the things we're going to be talking about um, over the course of this term is this idea of one thing. One thing. And uh, I know lots of you are really busy. And you're pulled in all sorts of different directions. I know your lives are full. And one of the things we're going to be talking over the course of this term is the idea that we, as a community, and you as individuals, start to seek God for the place where the calling lies on you. What is the one thing? What is the one thing that God calls you to devote a significant proportion of your time and your energy to? What is the passion that lies within you, the project, the people? What is the way that which you as an individual or you as small groups of people are going to do this very job of being witnesses of Jesus Christ here in the midst of this city? What, what is the way that you are going to bring in the kingdom in your life and in the lives of the people around you. And we're going to be looking at lots of different ways of you exploring that. We're going to be looking at the gifts you already have, the things you're already passionate about, and we're going to be talking together. But ultimately, it's going to come to each of you as individuals to make a decision. What is your one thing? What is the thing that, above other things, I dedicate myself to, that I'm willing to actually sacrifice, to serve, even if it costs me, even if it hurts me? What's the passion that God has laid within me that I am actually going to live out? And it may be a project which runs for six months. It may be a couple of years. It may be the thing that you devote your life to. Remember that picture of the uh, disciples standing there looking at the sky and the angel who appears and says, get your ass in gear. What are you doing? You have a job to do. The book of Acts is a story which you and I are called to involve ourselves in. And that's the picture that I want to leave you with tonight. So let's pray that that same Holy Spirit who empowered those hapless disciples to be bold, courageous, compassionate witnesses to Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth might do the same job in us in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're often confused about this plan, about this idea that it is us who are called to be witnesses. 
It is us to do, who are called to do the job by the power of your spirit of building your kingdom. Lord, we'd rather not do this and we're afraid of it, but it seems that this is your purposes. Lord, we pray that you, just as you did with those disciples, would make us bold and courageous, would give us a clarity of vision of what it means for us to find that one thing, that one place where we devote our time, our energy, our money and our passion that we might see your kingdom come, maybe just in a small way, in our lives and the lives of those around us. Give us grace, we pray, this coming term, as we hear this story, that we might involve ourselves in it. In the name of Jesus. Amen.